Well, good morning. Uh, it's been a while since I've done this, and I appreciate Joel giving me the opportunity to open the scriptures uh, with you this morning. Today is the first Sunday of Epiphany. We've just been through the seasons of Advent and Christmas, and last Monday on January 6th, we entered the, a new season with the Feast of Epiphany. This will lead us through the next seven weeks or so up to Lent. You'll see in the Happenings newsletter that it says, In the Epiphany and the days following, we celebrate the revelation of the Messiah to the entire world. Jesus is light of the world. The most common text for Epiphany is the coming of the wise men, which actually was the gospel text for last Sunday. Um, in the coming of the Magi to the Christ child, we see that Jesus is Messiah, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. The word for epiphany comes from the Greek verb that means to bring to light. Jesus is revealed as the light of the world. There are other common texts for epiphany too, the account of Jesus' baptism, which we'll look at this morning, also the story of turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana, and the basic idea is to look at Jesus' life, the time in between Christmas and Easter, and see what is revealed about him. The theme is one of manifestation. What has been largely hidden is made more widely known. This morning, I want to peel back some of the layers of our text, the book of Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism. As I spent time in this text, I asked myself questions like, what is John doing out there in the desert? Why is Jesus baptized by him anyway? What about the words God speaks over Jesus? What kept bubbling to the surface for me, somewhat unexpectedly, was a theme of abundance. And so, as we go, I will reflect now and then on how abundance manifested itself to me along the way. We have before us five familiar verses at the end of Matthew chapter 3. In the first section of that chapter, we are introduced to John the Baptist and his ministry in the desert. So Matthew 3, 7 to 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, <laughs> but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff will, he will burn with unquenchable fire. Jesus, uh, John is, of course, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And yet, this is an intriguing introduction to Jesus, is it not? Would you or I choose to introduce Jesus this way? Nonetheless, enter Jesus. Verses 13 to 15. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So onto the stage steps Jesus, ready to start kicking butt, right? <laughs> that seems to be the direction the text was going. That seems to be what John is setting him up for. Instead, Jesus asks, is asking John to baptize him. John is in the desert, calling Israel as a nation to repent and offering baptism as a response to his call. Offering, Jesus a or offering Israel a chance to reorient, to be purified, and to get ready for what, or rather who, is to come. Does Jesus need to repent, to reorient? Of course the answer is no. John's baptism is meant to prepare others for Jesus. So why does Jesus get baptized? There are a lot of answers to that question. Some say that Jesus is sanctifying the waters of baptism. As a good leader, he is doing himself what he is going to ask of us, and instead of the water purifying him, it is his purity, his purity that sanctifies the waters for us. I like this idea, and have probably grossly oversimplified it, but I also want a reason that fits the context on the ground a little more. Another idea is that Jesus is identifying with us. John is setting him up to deal out God's judgment, but instead, Jesus, in his first public act, gets in line with the sinners. John certainly recognizes the incongruity, doesn't he? Right from the beginning, Jesus doesn't seem to avoid the appearance of evil at all, does he? Over and over, from the beginning, in his genealogy, with its sordid characters, to the company he keeps and his eating habits, ultimately to his sinner's death on the cross, Jesus doesn't look like we might think holy would look. In this I see a kind of abundance starting to be manifest. A different sort of joy and purpose is budding. A God and a savior whose life does not conform to our expectations. As an aside, that phrase, avoid the appearance of evil, is misleading, for it comes from a rather poor King James translation of 1 Thessalonians 5.22. In current translations, it is avoid all kinds of evil, or avoid all forms of evil. And that makes more sense when we hold it up to the light of Christ. Anyway, so Jesus identifies with us in his baptism. I think we're getting there with that explanation, but of course, Jesus himself gives us a reason. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. John is satisfied. Let it be so now, as if there is something about the current context that requires the role reversal. Fitting to fulfill all righteousness, not my righteousness. Jesus' words don't really allow for any version of him saying, I need to be made clean, but are pointing beyond something personal or individual to him. We have said that in his baptism, Jesus identifies with us sinners, and he does, but more precisely, he's identifying with Israel. 
The fancy way of saying this is that he is the recapitulation of Israel. Let me explain. Remember after the Magi, when Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus went to Egypt in order to escape Herod? Matthew describes this in chapter 2, verse 15. And he says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Out of Egypt I call my son. Of course, when Hosea wrote those words, they were about Israel and the Exodus. But now Matthew applies them to Jesus. In our passage, John is calling and baptizing people into the true people of God, the true Israel. And this is what Jesus is stepping into when he steps into the Jordan. He's going to go through the waters and be led into the wilderness and be tempted, just like Israel was led through the waters of the Red Sea and then into the desert, except Jesus is going to be God's true son. He's going to get it right. This isn't just a cute thing that theologians pull out of the text, as if it's, hey, look at these parallels between Jesus and Israel. Isn't that neat? No, this is important. It's important if you were a Jew back in the day. Your whole identity is based in this story of God and your people Israel. And Jesus is fulfilling that story. For that reason, fulfillment is a big theme for Matthew throughout his entire book, not just here. Five times in the first four chapters alone, we see Jesus fulfilling something. After that, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. The law and the prophets, the way God shows his people the way of righteousness, these are fulfilled in Jesus. Matthew is concerned to show his primarily Jewish audience that their old, old story is culminating. And in our passage, Jesus is baptized as God's son as a public declaration that he is going to fulfill all righteousness, or put more simply, that he is going to complete God's story by finally doing things God's way. This idea of recapitulation, of fulfillment, is important for us too. Because in order for us 21st century Gentiles to understand our Lord and Savior, we need to understand him in the context of that same story. Here again, I see abundance because the, this context helps us avoid creating a savior in our own image. In our culture, we were, where we are so used to consuming and to browsing for solutions to problems, it's all too easy to turn to Jesus or to turn Jesus into merely a divine debt absolver, into insurance for our eternal destiny and a handy salve for guilt. Or maybe it's into a divine blank check, ready to grant me success and easy everywhere. I don't know about you, but those kind of fast food versions of Jesus don't satisfy. I need far more saving than that. That little word fulfilled helps us put Jesus in the right context so that he can be all that he truly is in our lives. There is an abundance in that, an abundance in the many facets of who Jesus is. And there is abundance in this old story of the Father's love for his people that is fulfilled in Jesus, a never stopping, never giving up, 
unbreaking, always, and forever kind of love. So Jesus doesn't need to be baptized for himself, but does so as one of the many ways that he identifies with Israel. Or better put, as one of the many ways we are now to look to him as the new Israel, as God's true self. The best evidence for this is not in the phrase, fulfill all righteousness, but in what happens after. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The heavens were opened, and in case we didn't know it already, we see that this is no ordinary baptism. Far from Jesus confessing sins in baptism, this is God the Father speaking words of affirmation and delight over him. There are two main Old Testament allusions in the Father's words. These are examples of the kind of abundant context I was talking about. Psalm 2 is a celebration of a new king being crowned in Israel. In it, God rebukes the kings of the earth who plot against God's anointed one. In verse 7, the Lord says of the king, you are my son. The same words that the father speaks over Jesus in Matthew. They are a royal declaration, not a claim of Trinitarian divinity. Verses 10 through 12 read, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We have in Jesus' baptism his first public act. It is the beginning of his public ministry. Jesus humbles himself and identifies with Israel, but we see him to be the true Israel because the father exalts him as his son, the Davidic king. It is his commissioning, his coronation. Jesus is king and demands absolute allegiance. One day, every knee will bow. Further, the Father's words echo Isaiah 42, our Old Testament reading for this morning. Verse one of which says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Here, Matthew is drawing on the so-called servant songs in Isaiah, and it would have been a worthwhile sermon simply to push into these because they help us understand what kind of king Jesus is, a king who establishes God's justice on earth as it is in heaven, a king who saves his people in a unique way by suffering on their behalf. God, through Matthew, is saying a lot in these words about Jesus. In this short passage, we have a number of layers, a number of epiphanies, we might even say. We have Jesus, God's son, the true Israel, the fulfillment of righteousness, the Davidic king, the suffering servant, an abundance of ways to understand Jesus, what he did, what he does, and what he will do. This is my beloved son, 
with whom I am well pleased. God speaks these words over Jesus, and I can't help see the abundance in them as well. How must Jesus have felt to hear them? Jesus was fully human, after all, and he was beginning his public ministry. Was he nervous? Was he a bit insecure? Did he already have it all figured out? We can't really answer those questions from the text, but I know I relate to those feelings. What comfort it is to know who you truly are. Into that earthy, messy human situation, the Father speaks his words. And we know from the rest of our theology that when God looks on us, on those of us in Christ, he sees his Son. These words are spoken over us as well. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You are my beloved Son in whom my soul delights. You are my beloved daughter in whom my soul delights. Abundance. There's one more layer I would like to peel back, but this is more often called theophany, not epiphany. It is not simply light shining forth, it is God shining forth. In the Orthodox tradition, their main text for epiphany is not the Magi, it is our text for this morning, and in it they see God shining forth as Trinity. And it is there, is it not? Probably on the ground that day, when Jesus came to John, that wouldn't have been one's first thought. They were good Jews, after all. I think, then, one would have thought more about those themes I have just tried to unpack. In that context, God's Son is a royal title, not a divine one. But surely, Matthew knows what he is doing in this passage. The idea of the Trinity, of three in one, one in three, is not fully developed in Scripture, but Matthew himself has the as Jesus send out the disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I don't think we can be accused of reading the Trinity back into this text to see it in our, pas in our passage. My favorite Greek word is perichoresis, and it is apt here. It is the word used to describe the relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and it literally means dance around, perichoresis. The picture in my head is of three joining hands in a circle and dancing for joy. This word preserves both the unity and distinctness of the members of the Trinity, but I love it for the beautiful way it captures the everlasting, self-giving dance of love that is central to the character of our God. In our text, we see the Father in heaven speaking words of affirmation and delight to the Son. Now incarnate and human, we see the Spirit descending from the Father and resting on the Son, and we see the Son humbly receiving from the Father and the Spirit and ready to set out on his Spirit-empowered mission to reconcile all things to the Father. I'd like to read a paragraph um, from this book, Riff of Love, by Greg Jarrell, uh, who actually lives in Charlotte. He's part jazz musician, part pastor, part community organizer. He says, how curious and yet how normal that a church, the gathered people of God, would believe that there is not enough, especially in a place of conspicuous wealth. 
abundance in Christian theology is built into the foundations of the universe. God exists as an abundance so overflowing in goodness that God can only be described as mathematical nonsense, three and one and one and three. Out of this abundance, God improvises something new, a creation of land and people, of persimmons and snow leopards, of sweet gum trees and sand dunes. God creates it all for friendship between people and the land that sustains them, between God and people, between God and the peculiar creation that flows out of God's extravagant existence. In this world of bounty, there is enough. Enough stuff to care for every neighbor, enough time to make enemies into friends, enough imagination to re-envision the world. There is abundance built into the foundations of the universe because it is there in the character of God. Our text gives us a little window into that. So how might we respond? How might we connect more fully with that abundance? There are many good answers to that question, but the one from our text is clear, through repentance. This may seem counterintuitive. It may seem that repentance is a road to desolation, not to abundance. But this is a lie. It's true, we're not so good at repenting. I'm not good at it. But where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That is the truth. Repentance isn't about guilt in this text. I like how one commentator puts it. In Matthew 3, repent doesn't just mean clean up your act, although it does imply readiness. It primarily means come to the God who is coming to you. John preaches repentance, but he preaches it to connect people to Jesus. So too with us. Some of us may need that once-for-all kind of repentance, where we hear the words, Beloved, spoken over us for the first time from our Heavenly Father. Most of us need to continue to follow the example of our Lord in assuming a posture of dependence and humility and submission to the way of righteousness. Gerald continues, the closest God comes to scarcity is in Jesus' self-emptying on the cross, suffering to the point of death. But even self-emptying creates another opportunity for the display of God's abundance. God chooses to work in the world through the kind of friendship that looks like self-emptying, yet becomes a display of abundant life. Jesus appears in solidarity with those who bear flesh who face the limitations of cold and hunger and desire and disease. The God become human shows that by emptying oneself, a new path of overflowing creativity is born. My prayer for us personally and collectively is this. May this next season be one of epiphany for us May it be one where the abundance of God that is sometimes hidden be made manifest and be brought to life. And more to the point, may it be one of theophany, where we find that abundance in the only place 
it can truly be found in Christ. In Christ, our constant connection to whom draws us into the everlasting creative dance of love that we know as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.